But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> I have no idea how to start this episode. I'm really... I'm really um, uh, say so, what's on your mind. Yeah, what's that? Say what's on your mind. What's on my mind. Well, well, this morning, rum, rummaging through various ruminations, rummaging, rummaging through ruminations, I like it, um, rummaging through ruminations, um, I came across a, an item that's sort of been buried on the list and I've been skipping over for a while. And maybe we'll just kind of like get, it, get rid of it here and get it over with. All right. I'm going to start out by reporting on a news story that came out of my tech world um, where a, a pretty well-known Mac guy named Marco Arment um, posted on Twitter that uh, that he had received an email from his bathroom scale, um, <laughs> which which I understand because there is in fact software these days. Bathroom scales are smart; they're they're you know IoT Internet of, Internet of Things devices, and bathroom scales will report to your phone what your weight is and whatever it does. I've never owned one of these things, but uh, um, and so and that led me to to ponder on to ruminate on the uh, the reality of smart devices taking over our world, and that that led me to drones, drones. So uh, so drones. Let's talk about drones here for a second. Um, apparently, um, more and more retailers are exploring the idea of using drones to uh, deliver products, which which to me it to me strikes me as being an idea that's right up there with flying cars, but. I don't, you know, 7-Eleven apparently, right? Yeah. And this is just going to make it, I don't know. See, you guys don't care. This is only bothers me. Well. I, 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 I've said this all along. People who have been listening to this podcast for a long time know that I am um, somewhat of two minds. I'm somewhat schizo on the subject of drones. Because as a technologist, and I'm actually, tri- what's the three, if you've got three personalities? It's, uh, so I, I, I the technology. What's that? Dave? Yeah, I know. The technologist in me. Um, the technologist in me is fascinated by drones, the technology of drones and, and playing around with them, cool gadget toys and that kind of thing. The uh, 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 civil libertarian in me is concerned about privacy issues with drones, particularly with them flying over people's private property and that kind of thing. Um, especially as they get smaller and smaller. And the aviation person in me is very, very concerned about airspace conflicts. And so I, uh, it's a thing. It's a thing. David, are you yeah. still even there? You have, you've been quiet. Uh, I'm not sure what the question is. Either. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's, that's, that's the, that goes right to the heart of this opening that's, subject here. There was a midair between a drone and an airliner a couple weeks back, wasn't there? There, no. was a rep- there? there was a reported midair between a drone and a trans- jet transport. Uh, I but I don't it was recall. more reliable than reported. I thought they pretty much determined from the nature of the damage to the aircraft. They, apparently it bounced off the nose or something like that. And, uh, yeah, I suspect it would have, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and since then? Yeah. Since then, they did a... Uh, forensic exam and uh, declared that it was a structural failure of the radome. Okay. All right. I stand corrected. So we haven't had well, a mid-air well, yet. Well, that's, that's what they tell us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like that. Uh, what was that, that? What's that? 
that uh, uh, what was it like a bizjet crash from a long, 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 long time ago, Jeb? That you you think is you, you, that that's got your conspiracy yeah. theorist hackles raised up and. Uh, oh, uh, I'm not sure I understand what you're talking about. Yeah, we talked about as I recall the story. There was a crash. A business jet. And I, I that may be mistaken, but whatever kind of aircraft it was, the wreckage contained paint. Stains or paint? Oh, 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 oh! Yeah, that goes oh. way back. Yeah, that goes way back. That goes back, I think, to the nineties. Okay, so maybe that wasn't a drone midair. Maybe that was sort of a spy plane well, midair or something. Well, it, like it was. It was. Yeah. It was suspected to be some kind of uh, stealth drone, right? Because it, none, none of the radar systems in the area showed another aircraft. But the aircraft that was damaged showed impact damage and paint smears from something. Okay. And so. there were no other. There were no reported crashes. No other aircraft A recorded in the area, or B uh, missing. All right. So uh, okay, that's a long time ago. Probably not a drone. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there was a. There used to be an NTSB report on it. I'm sure the Google would tell us. Um. Um. I'm not going to take that on as a project right this moment. Though. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, and that it, it, at that point when this was a story, uh, or a, a rumored story, or a rumor, or whatever, uh, we weren't talking about the drones, quote unquote, that we're talking about now. So, in the words of Obi Wan, "These are not the drones we speak of today." <laughs> See, if I was ready, that would be a perfect segue. I should do it right now. Uh, but there was, there were, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of ink being given to military drones like the Predator, uh, and the fact that they were being flown under very tightly controlled circumstances in the United States. Period was given some people heartburn. Uh, so there was a lot of stuff going around on the level of black helicopters, you know, dropping in to change the Russian election or whatever. And then uh, <laughs> yeah, this I know, hobby. Really, I know. I heard that, too. All right. Keep going, David. I'm sorry. You're on a roll. That's 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 OK. Yeah. A, 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 a slow laugh is better than no laugh. Uh, <laughs> um yeah. But then, then uh, you know, there were there were drones that were used by the government, and there were RC aircraft that were used by hobbyists, and the quadricopters that you know, and the multicopters that have become this whole new strata, it didn't exist yet. Right. So there was all this paranoia about, uh, you know, why are we letting these things in the airspace when the guys controlling them can't see traffic around them, and if you remember when. Oshkosh first had a military armed type drone yeah. on there were display. Major procedures to get it into the into the airport. Exactly, yeah. the matter yeah. had had to be escorted by uh, an aircraft with sightseeing people in it, uh, able to control the drone en route, uh, and there had to be a team on the ground to land it. And uh, you know they went to they went to uh, great uh, effort to uh, find a way to satisfy everybody that this was being done safely and then had to publicize it so people wouldn't be paranoid and not try to fly into Oshkosh because, oh, my God, it won't know to land on the red spot. Right. You know, if there's nobody there to see the red spot. So 
So uh, is there is there any irony in the fact that that years ago when drones weren't that big a threat, we were concerned about them, and now that there's a lot of them, we're not concerned at all. I don't see the I don't see a lack of concern today, but quite the opposite. I see a lot of like what. Uh, uh, justifiable paranoia because of the number of incidents reported by pilots on approach to airports of having too close encounters with multi-copters uh, sometimes flying alongside the airplane. Well, I, I, like, have they all just been ultimately determined to be structural failures of the radome? Being well, <laughs> those, those guys weren't reporting hits. Yeah, okay. I know, I know. I, 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 I'm just trying to stir up trouble here because, because I'm really nervous. My, wearing my general aviation hat, I'm really nervous about drones. They just really, really trouble me. And, uh, um, you know. And then, then with all due, in, that, in, in fairness, in fairness, with people like my our friend of the podcast, uh, Mike Daniels, who's in the drone business, all right, and uh, has become a distributor of a, of a handful of, of drone uh, types, quadcopter or, or, and, and sixcopter, you know, six-bladed things. Um, and, and I've had conversations with him, and uh, by every measure I can determine, he's very, very responsible about doing all the right thing, about obeying the rules and you know, respecting the airspace and, and all those requirements. You know, he came to came to our, our UCAP meetup at Nashua a few, well, probably a couple months ago now, and uh, and wanted to fly his drone in the parking lot um, at Nashua and went and spoke to the tower and the FAA. I'm not exactly sure, but I know, I, I trust, and I've heard secondhand that he did all the right things about uh, about getting pr- approvals and permissions and notifying and everything that, he's, he, that you need to do you know, in terms of law and regulation and safety. And so, well, you know, there was there was this whole wild west attitude when these uh, photographically equipped drones started uh, showing up, and a whole big segment of the business community is salivating over all the new things that they can do, and they don't have to worry because they're not controlled by the FAA. They can do whatever the foxtrot they want, wherever the foxtrot they want to, when they want to. And the FAA and the aviation community with the the human-carrying aviation community kind of went, whoa, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. You don't get to go anywhere, anytime without adhering to the same rules. And we need to know that you know those rules, which got us all into the, uh, the system that we've got now with the FAA of registering them if they're over a certain weight. And the commercial drone pilot uh, uh, ticket that you can get so that you can legally operate for commercial purposes and do some of the kind of stuff. Our electrical utility here is uh, moving to uh, use drones exclusively for uh, patrolling its uh, high uh, high tension wires, its uh, transmission transmission lines. Yeah, the stuff that they used to send people out in trucks or out in you know Cessna one seventy twos to do is now being handled by drones, but it's being handled under the constraints of the uh, commercial drone. Uh, uh, operating rules, mm-hmm. which means it's not some guy sitting in an office miles away doing this. It's, it's some guy maintaining a certain degree of line of sight contact, uh, which means somebody's still going out there, but they're not having to pay for a 172 to do it. They're more than likely paying for a small pickup truck. Right. 
Yeah. So, okay. All right. Well, I, I don't know. I failed at whipping up a big anti-drone frenzy this morning, so I guess I'll just let it go to another day. You know, we we don't have Seven Eleven here, so I'm not real stirred up about it. So, now, a quick trip starts to do in that. Jeff, there are a couple of there are a couple of Amazon deliveries inbound to Hidden River uh, with my name on them. So uh, maybe okay. I should warn you about that. I'm not sure okay. if there was any sort of you know permits I was supposed to. You know, just well, as long as just as long as those drones are gator proof, there shouldn't be an issue. <laughs> Is tracking enabled on these devices? It is, as a matter of fact. Um, So uh, I'm not convinced they're all FedEx, but uh, uh, they are Amazon, so the Lord knows how they're arriving. And it's Amazon. It's like you place one order, and it's going to come in six pieces. You are are near within five miles of an airport there last time I remember. That's that's, – I was going to say something. I don't know how they would handle it. I think they might have to actually use a human – have to use a human to deliver. Oh, just so 20th century. Oh, my gosh. Well, they could use a dog sled. I mean, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. they'd probably only do that once. (laughs) Welcome, (laughs) folks, to Uncontrolled Air. Well, that was, I don't know where that all went, but uh, we'll let the listeners decide. By the way, what did this? What did your scale say? Or what did the scale say to? Thank you, thank you. Yes, I wanted to cry. Yes, what? What did the email say that the 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 oh. Internet of Things uh, bathroom scale sent? What, what was that? Me. What was the link I included in the notes here? Let's see. Uh, was it something to the tune of "Get off my head"? No, as a matter of fact, he's got the text of the email is in the tweet. Click the link; you'll see it. Uh, Marco Arment, uh, a very, very respected uh, uh, t- technology uh, writer and, and programmer and uh, and Mac guy. I just got an email from my bathroom scale telling me that its battery is low. It's in the, and he where, shows. Where is that? It's in the show notes okay. or the uh, the list there, um, and the link next to it's like very high on the list. It says, uh, "Hi Marco, your Aria battery is le- level is low. Replace your batteries as soon as possible." Here's the ah okay. I had to refresh. You need four standard 1.5 volt AA batteries. Yeah, see, so <laughs> see, so by the way, th- this is extra a- <laughs> <laughs> happy stepping. <laughs> yeah, I think stepping is the name of the product or the the. I, I was thinking it would be like two words, dude. Uh, athlete's foot. You yeah, know, so. right. No, no, it's uh. <laughs> But this is a, this is an example of a of a of a, a machine that's smart enough to to seek out f- uh, nutrition food. I, I uh, well I don't know the other podcast the technology podcast will talk about my thoughts on on the rise of smart machines, which I think is much more further along than people realize. But well yeah yeah I have a, a mixed attitude about the the. the uh, Smart devices that use some kind of form of Wi-Fi to let you remotely connect thermostats and lights and all this stuff. I got visions of some guy sitting out a half a block away going, let's foxtrot with Dave and turn the AC on. Oh, absolutely. When it's, you know, minus 30 outside. Absolutely. I mean, it's already happened. I mean, it's, you know, and these things have already been compromised in a big way. That's definitely a story for the technology podcast. But but mark my words, as our cars and our airplanes get smarter, um, it's going to be a big story the day that a big virus gets into the system, um, infecting your car or your airplane's uh, avionics. Um, and uh, and that's just a matter of time. That'll happen too. 
Sure, so, it'll happen. And, probably but, not going to happen in my household. I don't know. You carry a phone in your pocket. Uh, you. Uh, yeah, but I don't have it talking to anything in the household. Okay. Yeah, but it it, it talks to everybody else. Yeah. So. Uh, it's got not, a not, par- that, not not that we're paranoid. Right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm <laughs> paranoid if there really are people out to get you. Um, welcome, folks. <laughs> Uncontrolled airspace, uh, general it aviation lasts. podcast. <laughs> I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm coming to you today from uh, not from high atop Lookout Point, uh, where it is currently 32 degrees and, and just got over a little mini snowstorm and is icy and nasty. I'm coming to you today from the Hidden River Home for Wayward Aviators uh, here is somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, where I'm the guest of my good friend, uh, Jeb Burnside, um, who I guess I'll just say hey to now. First, I'm, I'm here talking to my two good friends. One is just across the hall, uh, is... Uh, uh, is uh, Jeb Burnside from uh, also somewhere near Sarasota, Florida? Hi, Jeb. How you doing? <laughs> I'm I'm okay. I'm I'm a little stiff and sore. Something about which we might discuss. But, yes, uh, yes, yeah. Uh, it's hard labor. Uh, you no, we've been working on some cool projects here. Um, yeah. I've been down here for about four days now, five days, something like that, and uh, and we've been working on uh, a couple of your uh, home improvement projects that that uh, we started yeah. a while ago and have been kind of on hold and uh, and so and. Although many tools have gone into the pond, neither of us have gone into the pond yet. <laughs> well, 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 we'll get them both back. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. and the alligator uh, has been of no help at all, just none. You would have thought he'd it, come over. It's, it's, it's been very boring, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, not, he's not exciting at all this week. Yeah. And Maybe he's out shopping for shoes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, we did nickname him Floorshine. Floorshine, so. yeah. And my other good friend here in our virtual hangar is uh, from uh, also balmy. You were telling me it's like 60 degrees there today, uh, Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. David Higdon. How you doing? Doing okay. Yeah. Doing okay. Uh, it's been, uh, well, let's see. We had a uh, ice storm over the uh, weekend and freezing rain uh, Friday and into Saturday morning. And yesterday it got into the 50s and today it's headed to the 60s. So... Whiskey Tangle Fox trot on the weather. Yeah. Having a heat wave, dude. Yeah. Yeah, if yeah. the sun actually comes out, I've got the sunscreen on standby. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the 32 degrees in in, uh, in uh, New England is, is uh, 30 degrees itself is not uncharacteristically warm for this time of year. But for it to make it to 30 degrees every day throughout January is uncharacteristic. And uh, it's unusually warm. So, anyways. What's going on here? Uh... Look who uh, somebody just just joined us in our virtual hangar here, a, a, a good friend of the podcast and, and one of the UCAP AirCav is uh, Jim Goldman's here. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? The Air AirCav is galloping in. Good, yeah. a- good Hello, everybody. How are you guys doing? Yeah. Oh, so you're hoofing it today. Uh, we are. Oh, gee. What when, you want, when you want bad puns, just come to UCAP. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You can saddle us with that one. God. Uh-huh. Yeah, see, I'm sorry, Jim. Haven't you been listening? He does this all the time. You gotta like not not uh, uh, encourage him. Um, I know, but they get worse. They do oh, get fine. worse. <laughs> they get worse and better at the same time. Oh, you're uh, looking at it upside down. They get better. Yeah, yeah. Jim, how you doing? What's been going on? You're up in uh, where are you? You're in, you're in Pennsylvania right now. I'm at home in Pennsylvania, enjoying uh, the nice uh, winter day with 
temps around 50, which actually is not bad for mid-January. I know. Yes, we were just talking about the fact that it's been it's un, un well it's 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 just above freezing at Lookout Point, which is somewhat normal, but it's been that way every day, which is a good thing. And uh, yeah. David was telling us that it's going to be 60 in Wichita today. So uh, yeah, it's it's very warm, nice, warm all over, you know, uh, until until the hurricanes happen or whatever. So uh, right, yeah. So you've been having you had an adventure in your airplane, uh, I hear. Um, I I did have an adventure, and that's thought uh, we'd talk about that. I, we yeah, you you sort of briefed us on this a little bit, but I'm going to let you tell the whole story as if we haven't heard it. Um, but start out by telling us what airplane this is. The airplane you've been flying for a few years now, or something like that. Yeah, about two years. Uh, I've been flying my flight design CTLS CTLS, which I found out stands for Composite Light Sport. And it is a carbon fiber and fiberglass composite light sport aircraft. Mm-hmm. And for a while there, in, and maybe still is, the best-selling LSA in the market, as I, or at least it was for a while. It was for a while. I, who knows what the numbers are right. today, yeah. but it was. And there are plenty of them out there. Um, it's made in Europe, as many of the light sport aircraft are. And this particular one is a German company. Where the fiberglass work is done largely in Ukraine, and the motor, the uh, Rotax motor, comes from Austria. So we have a very European airplane. Right. And you really jumped into this with both feet. You not only purchased it and became its pilot, obviously, but you took the uh, mechanic training too, right? Yep. I took the class to get my uh, light sport repairman certificate, and that means with a maintenance rating. And, you know, it's all about ratings. So I have a maintenance rating and ratings for airplane, weight shift control, powered parachute, and glider, which means that essentially I'm an A&P mechanic with IA for light sport aircraft in those four categories. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. And have you done a lot of flying in the in the CT, or I mean, how how would you characterize your overall experience with this airplane? Well, in numbers, about a hundred hours over the over two years. Mm-hmm. In, in experience, I haven't really taken it on a lot of cro- long cross countries. Uh, it's been mostly local flying. It's a um, it really fits the light sport mission profile. Just to fly around on a nice day and go see things. The, it has amazing visibility through huge windows, and it's a high-wing airplane. So for the kind of flying I like to do, low and slow and checking out people's backyards, uh, it's great. It's a great aircraft for that. It uses, I mean, it's a Rotax at 3, 4 gallons an hour you know, in, you know, of gasoline from the gas station. And, you know, so it essentially costs nothing to operate mm-hmm. yeah. um it's a little tricky on landing but otherwise it's a really easy airplane to fly and um and i enjoy it yeah in what way is it tricky on landing um it, what they your motorcycle go ahead they don't Dave. slow down easily yeah it, it has very glider like tendencies okay. in fact if i get it in a good thermal i can go thermaling in it <laughs> so that gives you an idea. So when you're trying to land this thing, I mean, it weighs 800 pounds. Eight, uh, that's less than a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Oh, okay. Good. That's All an right. interesting way of putting it. Yeah, okay. Yep. So it's just a very light airplane. And so trying to land it just requires an incredible amount of patience and finesse. And I would say it's not, 
it's not hard to do with practice. What it is hard to do is transition from a 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 or whatever you're coming from airplane to an 800-pound airplane. It's a, it's a totally different experience. Yeah. There's, there, you know, this idea of pull back to raise the nose and, fl- and get the nose up. and you know, No, 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 no. You can't do that. You'll go flying again if how, you do that. How is the power to weight? Uh, ratio. Is it peppy? Does it have a good rate of climb? No, it doesn't, uh, to be honest. It's uh, it's about, the ratio is about right for an LSA. They're all like this uh-huh. because none of them really have much more than the 100 horsepower Rotax. So so they're on par with, say, a Cessna 150 or a Tomahawk or something like that as far as yeah, I have, concerned? I haven't flown those specifically, but I have flown the Skycatcher, the 162, and I know Dave has as well. And right. the perf- the performance is just about the same as the Skycatcher. Okay. Yeah, it's actually got better. The, the CT and the Skycatcher have better power and weight uh, than a 152 or a, a, a Tomahawk mm-hmm. or uh, the beach version of the Tomahawk. Because you're talking about an airplane with a gross weight by statute or by regulation, it can't be more than 1,320 pounds. Right. And then you got 100 horsepower on it. And on top of that, the 100 horsepower engine, in, in, in Jim's case, is geared right. to slow the prop right. down so you can swing a lot more prop bite. Uh, I've flown the CT and the Skycatcher and several of the others. And uh, these puppies move on out pretty well, even at gross weights. You can see 500 feet per minute plus easily. Yeah, but yeah. but you're not. But on a on a summer day, you're not going to get much more than that. And one of the things that I've experienced in the CT, and this is going to segue us into the maintenance issues, is that uh, the um, it, the cooling is not all that efficient in the in the way the CT laid out the uh, oil cooler. So on a hot day you have to do a somewhat shallow climb otherwise you'll overheat the engine pretty quick um, that's a, that's, that a little oil, that's an oil cooler thing or a, or a radiator or a liquid cooling thing they put the uh, flight design put the oil cooler which is essentially the oil radiator right directly behind the water radiator. They're sandwiched <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> okay, okay. That, right. that, would, that would come under my heading of not best practice. No, no. So, uh, so, the, so the oil is being cooled with warm air, basically. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And so the upshot is that the, 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 technically, the engine temperature stays fine, but the oil temperature goes up badly. Um, it got, the oil temp climbs, and all you have. All I'm saying is that on a uh, a hot summer day, I have learned to moderate the climb. In other words, don't climb at VX. Don't even climb at VY. Climb a little shallower. Take two, three hundred feet per minute. Take your time. You'll get there. Can you can you add fuel to this? To enrich in the mixture on this to maybe help try to cool the engine? Uh-huh. No, because the the so-called Bing, B-I-N-G, Bing carburetors that are on the Rotax carbureted motors have a uh, diaphragm that is uh, a sealed diaphragm unit that's used to pressure compensate as the airplane climbs. So it has an automatic mixture. There is no mixture control. 
I understand. Yeah, understand. the beach continental engines have had that system for a lot of years on Bonanzas, but you still have a manual mixture control to fine-tune it at altitude. Mm-hmm. But uh, it uses a similar bellows mechanism. As the pressure goes down, the bellows enlarges. As the bellow right. enlarges, it pulls a fuel mixture back. Right. Yep. Uh, it's kind of a nice system in a lot of ways. It, it, it does what it's designed to do very well. It turns out that may or may not be the best solution for a, a particular uh, uh, airplane and pilot. Yeah, and you know, all, you have to consider all the factors in the environment. If you're on a cool day, no problem, go for yeah, it. Right. If you're if you're on a hot day and it's only if I'm on a hot day flying on a hot day and it's just me in the cockpit, I can push it a little harder. If it's a hot day sure. and there's two people in the cockpit, then I got to be careful. That's yeah. all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's that's the same with you know a bonanza uh you know two people in it is one thing four people in it and full 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 fuel is another thing yeah it's they all have different characteristics so jim you had some excitement uh recently or in, in it's actually probably a month or two ago now but uh um on a, on a particular flight something happened yeah. what happened it was a nice warm fall day and i had a passenger and uh, we were flying around locally um we, but a pilot passenger, just so that we uh, were not scaring anybody to death. And we were flying around locally, having a good time, and we had just done some touch-and-goes at a nearby county airport. And on the climb out, you know, I noticed the oil temp started to rise, which is normal. However, when, I, when we leveled off, I noticed that the oil temp wasn't going down as it normally does. Once you level off, you get some good airflow through there. You're not using as much power. And the uh, oil temps come right back down. Mm-hmm. Um, we were at tw- we leveled off at twenty five hundred feet because we we're just messing around locally, and um, I noticed the temps didn't come down right away. And I thought to myself, "Oh, I wonder." And and the reason we're, I'm wondering, and I need to preface this to tell you that over the summer, I had two other problems relating to sensor issues. I had an oil pressure sensor go bad and needed to be replaced and a fuel pressure sensor um, wiring issue which was a dynon tech support issue and I don't, I don't want to go into all that but the 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 reason I'm mentioning those is that my mind was sensitized to dynon uh, c- computer sensor electronics issues because I'd have just had two of them recently so when I started to see the oil temps going up, I thought, do I really have an oil temperature issue or have I got a, another one of these annoying little computer sensor issues? And we all know from our automobiles, right? right. It's always a computer and sensor issue right. in, in the car. Yep. And this is, this is where um, Larry Overstreet and I talked about this a little bit. Um, I had to get. I had to plug his name, right? I had to get him in here. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it's the bad boys. The bad boys got to stick together. We have to stick together. And we were talking about this, and it's about, you know, when things happen in the cockpit that are not normal, it's not always as easy as you know what you had, Jeb, where uh, what the piston shot out of the cylinder mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. Not quite that bad in my, in my situation, but, uh, but yeah, well, we, we were yeah d- different situation. But, but go ahead. You, Yours was was pretty much okay. 
it's dead. We're done. Well, there, it was making a lot of racket. Uh-huh. And it was, I didn't need a gauge to tell me the, the airplane had a problem. Right. But some um, of the, some of the problems are, are more subtle like this. One. Sure. And, sure. and, you, and you've, you've read about other types of problems where you have a, a gauge that doesn't look right or an instrument that may be failing and you just don't know. And that's what was going on here. And that's what Larry and I were talking about, how a lot of emergencies are not as obvious as the engine quit. Mm-hmm. It's more like, what's going on? Do I have a problem? Should I do something? You know, should I continue on, uh, ignore it, wait till I get on the ground, that kind of thing. And I, mm-hmm. there's a great, just a great sentence or two in the, in this magazine I was reading, um, that talks about this. Um, it says, uh, I have to quote it cause I, I don't want to take credit for it, but it's written way better than I could say it. And this is what happened to me in my cockpit when this was happening. The most important lesson is that emergencies usually are not binary, ah. either or situations. Instead, they can be poorly defined, grow and dissipate in intensity, and present themselves in ways making them difficult to clearly diagnose. Uh, and that's the end of the quote. I don't know whether this magazine is some fly-by-night thing written by somebody. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay. Come on. Out with it. Who, who, who are you quoting? You're quoting J.R. Warmkessel. Yes, I am. Uh, in an article uh, that ran in uh, Aviation Safety within the last couple of months. Okay. Very and, nice. Yeah. 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 Thank yeah, you. Thank the, you. Thank you're you, welcome. Jim. It's in the January. But isn't that – it's a perfect description because here I see the oil temps not coming down. Do I have a computer issue? Is my engine really over-temping? I've just been flying for an hour. I've been doing touch-and-goes, and it's been fine. So what's actually happening? Mm-hmm. And we have no idea. The question in, in decision-making now is, do I have an emergency? Can I make it back to my home airport where I can like work on it? Should I land at the county airport where I just took off from, where I don't know anybody and nobody there knows what a Rotax motor is? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, what do we do? So what I, so what I, I guess I should, this is where if you had a lesson, we would stop and say, what would you do? Right. Um, but we're not going to do that. What I did do was I immediately turned the airport back towards the county airport. Just get that part done. Okay. Mm-hmm. Turn the airplane and then back to that temperature gauge. And it's still up there and climbing. Yeah. Now it's climbing. So I pulled back power and that started a descent. Not real fast, maybe 100, 200 feet a minute, but a gentle descent. Power's back. And the oil temp's still climbing. Now, remember, I've got another pilot with me. So we're having a conversation in the cockpit about what this might be and going through all the possibilities, which is both useful and distracting. Go ahead, Dave. Quite a question at this point. What's the coolant temperature doing? Coolant temperature was, was uh, steady. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Cylinder head temp was steady. Oil temp was rising. There's about, and I still got about, at this point, 30 degrees to go before it gets in the red. Okay? Okay. The, never ex- the so-called never exceed temperature. I, and when sorry, you pull the power back, the oil pump slows down, the circulation slows down. Whatever's causing this, it's not going to get cooler faster because of that. Right, but it's not going to, it shouldn't heat up the motor uh, because you're not putting on power. And when I saw the temps going up after I had pulled back power, that kind of got my alarm going. Okay. 
So what There's happened? no reason. I've never seen the motor heat up with the power pulled back. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about this with the other pilot, which is kind of a right. good, good and a bad thing. And good and a bad thing because it's 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 useful to kick around some ideas, but it's also distracting because I've got the conversation going while I'm trying to watch the gauge and also keep my eye on an airport, which is about uh, three, four and a half, mi- three and a half, four miles away, and all of that, and watch the altitude, which I'm now losing. Okay. Yeah. So at that point, and when I saw the temps continuing to rise with the power pulled back, and we were now down to maybe 2,000, 1,900 feet or so, I said, okay, <clears throat> we're obviously not going to make it home this way. I don't feel comfortable. There may not be anything but an electrical problem in the computer, but I, don't, I just don't feel comfortable with it. Sure, yep. So we're going to go land. So at that point, now this is a uh, uncontrolled, uh, I'm sorry, non-towered field. So there was no emergency to declare, but I did get on the CTAF and I said loud and clear, you know, this is, you know, uh, 26 kilo Juliet. We are coming in direct. We're like a 90 degree angle. But we're, I said, we're coming in direct to land with an oil temperature problem. Everybody else get out of the way. I didn't, <laughs> I forget the words I used, but it was very clear and very direct. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I did make a uh, biz jet go around uh, he was on the ILS final, and I he went around. So good for him. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Or her. Yeah, yeah. Really. Go ahead. But, but I, you know, I got the FBO's attention. Uh, I got everybody out of the way, and we just, I just pointed the nose of the airplane towards the end of the runway, and as soon as I knew I had the field made, I, I just turned off. I just pulled the power all the way back, left the engine running, but idle. Uh, that airplane, as we just discussed, you don't need a lot of power. You hardly need any. It's a good glider. Yeah. So once we could glide, that's what we did. And we just glided to a, to a run to a uh, landing, uneventful landing on the runway. And interestingly, when we landed, the uh, oil temp was just starting to get into the red. Yeah. Okay? okay. And the never exceed. And if you run an, an aluminum block engine long enough in the red, you can have a very expensive problem. Yeah. Um. And I like my Rotex motor. I don't want to buy another one. So, mm, okay, so we shut down over there by the FBO. And I, you know, I, yes, I just said at the beginning of this, I got my light sport repairman certificate. Well, that's great. But that doesn't mean you instantly know what's going on when you open up an engine cowling. Right. And looking at it, I'm like, okay, what's going on in here? Because we don't see any oil dripping any place. There's plenty of oil in the oil tank. Everything looks just hunky-dory. So what's going on? Mm-hmm. And this is what we discovered um, with the help of another mechanic who came out to look at it with me. It turns out the one of the oil hoses that... Uh, oh, let's see. I guess I sh- should I explain how a Rotex oil system works? Would that help or just go on? I, I don't know if it's how relevant it is. Tell, tell us what you discovered first and we'll ask you if it's okay. unclear. What we discovered was one of the oil hoses leading to the oil tank bent. It got, it got a little kink in it, mm. preventing oil flow. Uh, actually, it prevented the oil flow from the tank. So oil was being returned to the oil. T- this is where you have to explain. A Rotex motor the oil is not stored in the crankcase. It's stored in a stainless steel external tank that hangs on the firewall. Yep. Right. It's a dry sump engine. So-called dry sump engine. That's right. So 
the oil, uh, the return hose that, re, that where it sucks the oil up from the tank into the oil pump uh, had kinked. So the motor had problems sucking oil from the tank. So what had happened during the flight was that it pumped all the oil from the motor into the tank. And that's where it all was sitting in the tank. Mm-hmm. And the reason that the oil temp in the engine uh, kept rising was that the, there was no flow hmm. through the radiator, through the cooling. Hmm. It was just sort of pushing the same oil around inside the crankcase. There mm-hmm. was no more circulating out to the tank and through the uh, cooler. Do you have a? Is there an oil pressure indicator in the in the cockpit? Yes, and the oil pressure was still in the green the whole way. Where is that huh. sensor in line? Is it? It is right next to the oil pump. So there was enough oil just sitting in the crankcase for the oil pump to pump it up into the you know through the galleries. But what was happening is it wasn't being circulated out to the tank, and therefore it wasn't coming back through the cooler. Huh. That's key. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so sounds like you did the right thing by landing. Uh, it turns out. Now we didn't know that at the time. Remember, these emergencies are not are analog. They're not binary. Right. You don't you don't know. It's just it could be this. It could be that. It could be more or less. Who knows? And we could have landed and found a defective sensor, and you know, which would have told us we could have flown all day. But right. as it turns out, we found this oil kink. Now, where did? The, this is interesting. We, it was very hard to find this kinked oil hose, which you guys have, of which you have a picture. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was my next question. Yeah, how, how, did, how did you discover the problem? We didn't really discover it. We suspected it. We were trying to, ch- so we, we went on the theory that something was blocking oil flow. That mm-hmm. was just one of the theories. And I said, well, let's just follow the oil lines and see if we can find out, see if we see anything. And that's tricky, too, because in this motor, the oil lines are uh, fire-sleeved, so you really can't see them. But we saw a sharp bend in one of the oil hoses. It's very difficult to see because mm-hmm. flight design, in its infinite wisdom, ran the oil hose between the muffler and the bottom of the engine block. Uh-huh. probably the hottest place you could put a rubber hose, and that's where they put it. Okay? <laughs> There's a theme here about some of Flight Design's choices and where they put things, by the way. So, they, so we saw the oil hose coming up from under there, and we saw it bend at more than a usual angle. And uh, somebody who's got a lot more experience with Rotex motors than I do said, well, why don't we push back the fire sleeve and take a look? I said, all right. So we push back the fire sleeve, which is like working. It's like being a surgeon. You're working inside a little slit with long needle nose pliers and a flashlight trying to see in there. And that's where we saw the kinked hose. And we saw it under the fire sleeve, under the engine. Oh, it was just a pain in the neck to get to. To what we did to fix this, I should, I'll shorten this because I don't know how many, how many people are fascinated by these mechanical things. We put a splint on it. We basically tied a, uh, a solid, something solid to the outside of the hose with wire ties to keep it straight, making a splint just the way you would splint a broken bone. Mm-hmm. And that kept it open enough to get the plane moved from the um, county airport where we were to an airport just 20 minutes away where, where the maintenance guys are that I use. And they had to remove the muffler. 
and mm-hmm. take the bottom part of the, almost the whole bottom of the engine part, not the engine itself, but everything underneath it off to get to this hose to pull it out to see the picture that you see with the, the kinked hose. Right. And Rotax is infamous for having a five-year replacement cycle on all rubber hoses. Yeah. That's one of the costs of owning a Rotax. These hoses are three years old. And what that, what that tells us, Jeb, Dave, is that just because Rotex says they need to be replaced every five doesn't mean they're going to last five years. Mm-hmm. How long had it been since any work had been done on those hoses and or the, the engine generally before this, this episode? The oil hoses are three years old. The oil, an oil change was done just a week before. Uh-huh. But in doing an oil change, you don't, you don't you mess know, with you the do, hoses. You're yeah. not supposed to. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was very careful to make sure that the oil tank and everything was situated right back where it was. I even, I even mark things to make sure they go back in the same alignment. So what that, again, what, the, what does that tell us? That tells us the, ho- the hoses are old and weak at this mm-hmm. point mm-hmm. because just moving them, just, just pushing on them a little bit can bend them. You think it was the heat that uh, accelerated their deterioration? I have no doubt. Absolutely, this the kink is right over the muffler. I mean, come on, folks. Really, is that where yeah. you want to put a rubber hose? Yeah. Even in a fire sleeve. Um. Did uh, um. Did that resolve the problem? Yes. Did you? Re- so you didn't. Re- you didn't replace the hose with something that you could reroute to cooler passage? Um, we replaced the hose with new, but we installed it in the same place per flight design's design. When you change the design of a light sport aircraft, you need the manufacturer's approval of how you're changing the design. And I didn't, I wasn't right. ready to go down that route. So we just replaced it with a brand new hose. And unfortunately, put it back where flight design says to put it. Mm-hmm. Did you preemptively uh, include the splint? No, um, that's not part of the design. I mean, technically, we shouldn't have splinted it for the ferry flight, but we did. Um, no, the splint, you know, again, you'd need manufacturer approval for a design change to put that splint in there permanently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's pretty interesting, all of it. Um, both the, the decision-making process of deciding to land out, which seems to me to have been exactly, or obviously it was their exact right decision. And that's why it's called a precautionary landing. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we were talking about this beforehand, and I was going back and forth between referring this as a precautionary landing and a forced landing. That's kind of somewhere in between. Um, it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a for, had we, you know, had the engine gotten hot enough to die, then that would be a forced guess, landing. Since, since performance never noticeably changed. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. But it was my decision to pull back power, which meant I automatically decided to limit, you know, my uh, range. Right. Right. We were over more or less flat open farm area anyway, and I wasn't. I knew the plane would land, and I knew we'd be safe. The question is, would I have the inconvenience of taking the wings off in someone's field yeah. or not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's pretty Sometimes it's it's smarter to be on the ground wishing you were up there. <laughs> yeah. uh, two two incidents in my in my background uh, kind of remind me of yours. One was with our uh, 
our Cherokee uh, years ago, and Annie and I were getting ready to take off on a uh, long trip to the East Coast, and we just had uh, some work done at Dead Cow. And as we're uh, clearing the Class Charlie out of uh, Wichita Mid-Continent's airspace, and uh, I'd been held to an altitude until I got so far away, and then I was clear to climb. Well, I noticed when I pulled the power to level off, the oil pressure dropped kind of dramatically. When I added power to climb to my cruising altitude, the oil pressure went up, as you'd expect, but it went up way higher than normal, at which point we turned around and went right back to uh, dead cow. And uh took a little while to uh, to diagnose, but the, uh, the leprechaun found that there was some kind of uh, carbon debris in the thermistor that opens and closes with the oil temperature and helps modulate the pressure. Right. And it was causing it to stick wide open. So when you added power, the oil pressure went up to whatever the pump uh, could produce. When you pulled the power back and the oil pump slowed down, the pressure went down below what it would have been if this device had worked normally. Right. And it's like that was not something I wanted to do a 1,200-mile cross-country, uh, you know, with – Particularly since we were only 12 or 13 miles from the departure airport. It was like, okay, that, that's enough of this. The other was a valve sticking on a Cessna 150 with a Continental O200. And it was not opening and closing as, as it should have. It was opening and closing. But it was doing it much slower, and we could feel the power start to deteriorate. And then the cylinder head temperature went way up. And then the oil temperature started to go way up, and the pressure started to drop because of it. And in this case, we were about 20 miles from Dead Cow, and we got it into a sweet spot power-wise where we could nurse it back to Dead Cow. But we followed roads that gave us a landing option should the worst happen and the engine quit. And the gentleman flying with me was like, do you, do you always have these kind of emergencies when you fly? Because didn't you just have an alternator failure recently in IMC? And it's like, yeah, different airplane, different day. Uh, <laughs> so it's not the airplane, David, it's you. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. But, you know, the, the – the number of times that I've read about people ignoring things like this and then paying some kind of extra price for that decision right. uh, leads me to believe that you did a, you did a better job of taking this as seriously as, as, as it truly was. Right. But remember, remember how I said you could become desensitized to certain kinds of things. If, if you, if you notice that, Oh, you know, in this airplane, the oil, temperature is always high, or in this airplane, the oil pressure always looks low, or in this airplane, the tachometer is always a little bit off, and but it seems to work, so I keep flying. You, you become desensitized, and then what happens is the next time there's a problem, or when the, when the problem gets worse, you, you uh, shrug it off, right? It's very easy to do. And so you feel like you initially shrugged this off until it was critical? Well, I was, I was a little hesitant to, to, to take it too seriously because I had just been through two misleading sensor issues. 
mm-hmm. in the just two months earlier. Sure. So I thought, okay, this could be an oil temperature problem, or it could be an oil temperature sensor problem. I don't know. Hey, well, uh, the, the lights get scrubbed all the time because uh, uh, an idiot light that ain't working or one that's working too uh, too uh, uh, frequently. Because yeah. uh, somebody goes, wait, wait, wait. This ain't the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I had a similar thing years ago. I'm in cruise, and uh, one of my cylinders' CHT temperatures just just spikes like. To, uh, it was headed. It was headed north. Let's put it that way, which is one of the signs of detonation or or uh, uh, a preignition. And uh, so I pulled the power back and and kind of sort of hit nearest on the on the GPS and and landed at the uh, um, landed at a nearby airport. And I had an A and P with me. Uh, um, and you know I open I I crawl out and and uh, we open up the uh, the cowling I said all right fix it <laughs> you know you're an A and P he's like dude I don't know anything about these engines I work on jets and I'm like oh come on <laughs> <laughs> so so um we 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 made it home do some of that uh, A and P stuff Maverick <laughs> yeah that's right you know. Uh, show me that A and P stuff, dude. Um, so we made it home, no no issues. Um, but um, that, uh, what a coinky thing! That was the same cylinder that failed, like you know, a year later. Oh, interesting. What? Yeah, what a coinky dink, as my son would say. Yeah. So what? Uh, what cured that one? Did you replace the sensor? On my on my episode? Yeah. No, replaced the whole freaking cylinder and ultimately right. the engine. But, it but wasn't the, a, it wasn't the sensor. <laughs> right, right. But but the time but the time you were telling us about when you had the high pressure spike, did uh, the high right. temperature spike, did that that go away or did you do something to so that you were no longer seeing a spike on that cylinder? Or it just um, cure itself. It it just it just went away. Yeah. yeah. It just went but, away. But the, never the, did it again. I, I paid you know a little extra attention to it. Um, I didn't really change my operating practices because I didn't. For all I knew, it was a uh, a sensor problem. Right. Um, but the punchline is, um, I, I while I'd had some sensor problems early in the ownership of that airplane, I really haven't had any before. Uh, hadn't ha- haven't had any since, including that period of time that this occurred. Mm-hmm. Right. So. It, 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 it may have presented, it could have presented, I think it kind of sort of did present as a sensor issue, but there have been no other sensor issues with that cylinder or any others since then, which tells me, you know, obviously in hindsight, uh, um, that it was it was a for real thing. But it, but, but that's, that's the place where you, not you, Jeb, but another pilot could have gotten into trouble. You see that spike, you land, nothing seems wrong, you go flying again, everything mm-hmm. is fine, you figure, mm-hmm. oh, Nothing's wrong. It was just a once in a, a just an oddball thing. Right. Then when the when it's when that temperature spikes again in the future, you you might shrug it off and say, oh yeah, that happened once exactly. before. Nothing exactly. to worry about. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm I'm surprised. Well, I'm not surprised, but I'm I keep thinking about the idea that. So what little instrument training I have um, when you're flying on your gauges they teach you about all kinds of cross-checks you can use. So if one gauge is, is doing something odd, you can read another gauge in a particular way to try and confirm the first gauge. Mm-hmm. 
when you have things like oil pressure spikes or cylinder head temperature spikes, are, are there cross checks in flight that you could perform in order to try and determine what's going on? Well, yes, there yes, are. there are. You've got you have, you have cylinder head temperature and you have oil temperature and some engines exhaust gas temperature. There's different gauges. And you've got RP, RPM, right, and vertical climb, and you can tell how much power you're making. You also have fuel flow, uh, um, yep. uh, which is you would expect to see a reduced fuel flow with, uh, with high cylinder head temperatures, for example. Yeah. Although, Jim, if I understood you correctly, you said those kinds of cross-checks would have led you astray in this particular case because you said oil pressure was behaving normally and, um, and uh, head, cylinder head temperature, I think you said, was yep. in line, the c- too. The cylinder head temp wasn't rising. So your um, cross-checks implied that it was a sensor problem. That's what it implied. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, 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 maybe, maybe. First of all, I think you did the right thing, Jim. Yeah. And, and well, obviously the, the 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 outcome bears proof to that, but it could have just been a matter of time before you started that, seeing increased the, you know, reduced oil pressure and, and increased uh, coolant temperature. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure yeah. I I'm not sure about the oil pressure, but I I I think that if we gave it any power at all or kept flying, those cylinder temps would have come up. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Jim, before we let you go, um, I have one more question here, um, and uh, I'll just ask and see if you want to answer. So throughout this story, um, although you have been frank about some of this airplane's shortcomings, you've also kind of, I I got the feeling you've enjoyed this airplane and had some good times with it um, and Mm -hmm. uh, are are happy with owning it. Um, I'm wondering what your future is with this airplane. Uh, I'm trying to sell it, and let me tell you why. I like flying the airplane. I like flying in it. It's a, it's a lovely airplane. Working on it is very difficult. The way that uh, Flight Design built the cowling, if you ever, for any of our listeners, if you ever look at a picture of a CTLS, just do a Google search, look at some pictures, you'll see a very short, stubby little nose. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that means that the motor is in a very, very tight space. Yeah. And a Rotax water-cooled motor, it's got water hoses, oil hoses, and fuel hoses. There are a lot of hoses in that little tiny space. And working on that engine is very difficult. So, in a word, you're tired of getting hosed. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, what I'm hearing, Jim, is that um, if you were, like many pilots prepared to, or many airplane owners, um, prepared to simply have others do your maintenance work, this might not be a thing. But given that you want to do a lot of your own maintenance, it's a hand, it's, you're not happy with the situation. There you go. Yeah. And, 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 and there's no other re- light sport mechanics on my field, so I don't have somebody to just turn it over to. So, right. yeah, that's and so it's I have not, to get in there. My, it, it, I have to get in there myself, and it's a pain in the butt to work on. Right. So I'm looking for something that is both fun to fly and a little easier to maintain. Right. So again, put another way, your your decision to to probably g- get rid of this airplane is not that you distrust it or have any issues with it. It's just that you want an airplane that's a little easier to work on. That's all. That's all. Yeah. I, I have empirical empirical evidence for that. My the mechanic that I do bring the airplane to gave me a price or estimated a price for doing the five year rubber replacement that Rotex mandates. And he told me that in this airplane, it's his price is thirty percent higher than in other airplanes because it takes so much longer to get in there and do in a very tight compartment. Yeah. So 
there it's not just me it's it's a real hard evidence yeah yeah are we going to see you at sun and fun jim of course. Yeah. Of course, expect, of course, of course. I expected as much, but I just wanted to uh, to oh, say yeah. look forward to that. And we actually may see you, or Je- Jeb may see you down here. I guess you're, you're, you guys were chatting about a possible visit down here. But. Yeah, I'm planning a trip to Florida, um, probably not aviation-centric, but uh, just a trip to Florida in February. And uh, if I can tr- drop in and annoy Jeb at his home, I would be delighted. <laughs> well, you know, I look forward to it. No, Jim, you got, it's a pretty, it's a pretty high bar because I've been really, really tor- torturing and tormenting and annoying him to the max lately. So, uh, you know, I'm afraid, I'm afraid you're going to have to go pretty far in order to, to break right. through the level of, of uh, annoyance that he's already learned how to tolerate. Jim, Jim, you have to kind of interpret things. You know, you have to kind of pick whether it's a high bar to, to cross or a low bar. <laughs> All I know is that when Jeb starts making jokes about uh, operating his lawnmower, you got to start thinking about, you know, it's like, <clears throat> oh, you're going to love it. It's so much fun, Jack. <laughs> Next, yeah, that's. That's what I'm going to Florida for, to do lawnmower repair and motorcycle repair at Jeff's. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, apparently in addition to building bridges, I'm going to be cutting the grass before much longer. So uh, that's fine. It's, it's a perfectly reasonable price to pay. Yeah, Jim. And before, before this is over with, we just might put up a white picket fence. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Okay. All right. Jim, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And uh, You're welcome. And, I uh, hope it was instructive to someone. Yes. I, I, I think it absolutely was. Um, uh, it, very, very interesting. And uh, um and uh, not an off-field landing of the week, but a but a precautionary landing of the week, and uh, um, you know, good stuff to know, good stuff to learn, and, and it shows that it pays even if you suspect it's just a sensor to say, let's sit this puppy down. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly and, and, right. And if you've never landed at that airport before, all the better. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. New pin in the map. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Jim. Take care. We'll see you in uh, Lakeland in a, a month or a couple month and a half or something like that, um, if not sooner. If not sooner. All right, guys. Thanks for uh, talking. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks, Jim. Yep. Gene Cernan passed away this past week. Um, Very, very sad. Had a long, great life. Um, And... uh, but uh, but always sad to lose a a, a, a hero and a great aviation um, uh, supporter and advocate like that. Um, just an all around good human being. Yeah, and and David, you've crossed paths with a lot of these folks, these these legends of aviation over the years. I, I get the feeling that that you were a little closer or, or or cross paths more often than usual with Gene Cernan. Is that correct? Yeah, it was one of those dumb luck things, uh, being at the right place at the right time. Uh, one of the uh, uh, stand downs, Bombardier safety stand downs that uh, happens here in Wichita every year. I was checking in at the event hotel, and a little older gentleman came up uh, on my left to check into, and the lady behind the counter said, Oh, good to see you, Mr. Shira. And it was Wally Shira, who <laughs> was my mother's favorite astronaut. Uh, after uh, after the uh, uh, Gus Grissom, who died in Apollo One fire, uh, who was an Indiana boy, uh, Mom always liked how affable Wally Shira was, and he doing commercials on TV after he left NASA and talking about fighting a cold or something in space, and 
Anyway, we uh, shook hands, introduced ourselves. A lady told us that uh, they were just starting to serve the lunch. And uh, he said, where's that? I said, well, I'm going there. Uh, You can walk with me. We went to lunch. We went through the line together. We sat down together. And we're sitting there shooting the breeze, talking about stand down. He'd never been there. What to expect, what goes on. And I felt these two hands on my shoulders. And this baritone voice comes through and says, You know, you're judged by the quality of the company you keep. Do you know do you know who you're sitting with there? <laughs> was he speaking and, to you or, or Shara? He was speaking to me, yeah. but he was talking about Shara. Oh, okay. While he looked up and big grin on his face, he jumped up and the two guys hugged and he he said, uh, do you know my friend Gene Cernan? I said, no, but I know of him and pleased to meet him. And over the next several years, uh, Gene and I got acquainted from uh, our mutual attendance at Stand Down, where he was a, a presenter, and uh, they even named an award after him last year. Uh, and Gene usually took the role of talking about professionalism in flying and how... Flying like a professional had nothing to do with whether you got a paycheck for it and everything to do with your frame of mind. And uh, we shared uh, drinks together in a room. Uh, there was a, a smoking lounge in the hotel that state law hadn't yet prohibited that they put a big fake ship type uh, entrance and called it the captain's quarters because uh, Gene was a retired Navy captain. And mm-hmm. We got to know one another fairly well, and I'd bump into him at NBAA or some other business aviation event. Uh, he uh, was uh, uh, kind of a representative for uh, Learjet for a while. He was type rated in the 45. Uh, Gene had his own twin, uh, piston twin. Uh, Flew a lot, privately, and one of the most humble and unassuming human beings you could ever meet, despite having accomplished what he had. Uh, He was a Purdue graduate, uh, uh, electrical engineering, if I remember correctly, Uh, got a master's degree in aeronautics, uh, went to NASA in 63 as part of the... uh, I think it was the third class of astronauts, and uh, he flew Gemini and Apollo missions. He's one of only a couple of people to go to the moon twice. Mm -hmm. Uh, He went to the moon on Apollo 10 and and took the uh, uh, lunar lander down to within, I think, 50 miles of the surface, and then went back and rendezvoused with the command capsule and came home. And that was a predecessor to Apollo 11. And then he commanded the mission on uh, Apollo 17. Mm-hmm. And uh, he set records for most time on the moon, most time in space. Uh, for a long time, that's been surpassed by uh, shuttle astronauts since then. Uh but Gene really excelled at trying to bring the message of space exploration to people, including when he was on the moon. Uh, 
he and uh, his, his, his fellow crew member drove more on the moon than any other astronaut before or since. Well, definitely since, since we've not been back. Yeah. And he was a very active advocate for continuing space exploration and continuing to go to the moon with new research projects. Uh, they bought, brought back more moon samples than any other uh, mission. And uh, as he stepped into the uh, capsule uh, or into the uh, lunar lander for that last time, that made him the last man to walk on the moon. He yeah. wrote a book about it. Yeah, yeah. It hopefully just, not the last, but certainly as we speak, the most recent. As, as we speak, he's the last man to walk on the moon and, and looks like he will hold that title for a long time into the future, uh, much to his dismay. And counter to his urgings to Congress and everybody else he could talk to. Yeah. So a- aviation lost a real human being and a-, a true American explorer and hero in my eyes. Uh, it was just wonderful to get to know him. We'd bump into one another at other places. And it would always be, hey, Davey, how you doing? You still shooting pictures or are you stuck on a keyboard these days? <laughs> <laughs> he called you Davey? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a there's a there's another episode title. I know. Yeah, yeah. really. Well, and that that was that was what uh, that was what people called me until I was about twelve, uh, because my dad was <laughs> Dave Senior. So, and okay. it, and I always knew when I was in trouble because it went from being Davy to being David. Oh yeah. Well, okay. yeah, and, and, and for all the Davies out there, I'm not ridiculing the the Davy thing. I. Uh, I'm just ridiculing it being applied to Dave. Hinton. Understood. Understood. <laughs> Jeb, do you have any particular thoughts on on Eugene Cernan? No, I don't. I, I uh, except for the obvious. Again, you know, the passing of um, uh, an icon, and and uh, not just in aviation and aerospace, but in uh, you know the American experience. Um, it's a big deal. Uh, to have been an astronaut. It's a big deal to have walked on the moon. It's a big deal that uh, it took, you know, human beings to do this. It took uh, uh, people um, dedicated to the task. Uh, clearly uh, a high-risk environment. Clearly one-of-a-kind craft, uh, hand-built. Um, just just some amazing feats of... of <sighs> Technology and luck, uh, all intertwined. And uh, anybody who has the the, the, the hair to uh, to climb on one of those things and uh, do that for a couple of weeks, uh, more power to them. So, some special people. Obviously, we've lost several recently. We're we're uh, starting to run out of, of that that uh, genre. The 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 uh, Mercury, Gemini, and and Apollo astronauts. Yeah. Um, and that's a big deal too. Obviously, so is you know trying to go back to the moon at some point. But uh, so, uh, so uh, with all that having been said, I, I associate I, I fully associate myself with the gentleman's remarks. Yes, yes, David uh, and I too. I, I only knew Gene, Eugene Cernan, Gene Cernan, as a as a, a fan of aviation and a, a, an American citizen who admired what he did and what he you know the risks he took to explore and to 
and and so forth. But uh, I, again, David is. I, I've heard David tell Eugene Cernan stories for years, and uh, it's always given me a warm feeling about the man. Um, regrettably, I never got a chance to meet him, but uh, um, I'm I'm grateful for the things that he accomplished, um, you know, for well, the country he, and on our all of our behalves. He uh, added a jewel in my life by uh, having the opportunity to meet him and to. Uh, sit and share a meal with him a couple of times, share drinks with him a few times, but to just have him remember me and remember my name when we bumped into one another outside safety stand down, uh, it just gave me a warm and fuzzy like yeah. a few other things in life. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So our thoughts- I, I, I feel his loss like we were neighbors, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. So our our thoughts and prayers are with the the family and friends of uh, of Eugene Cernan, the uh, um, Apollo astronaut, American astronaut, uh, last man to walk on the moon, most recent man to walk on the moon. Hi, this is Jack. We here at Uncontrolled Airspace are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. There are two simple ways that you can contribute to this podcast. You can make a one-time, non-repeating donation by using PayPal. It doesn't need to be very much. As little as 10 or $15 is a big, big help. Or you can make an automatically repeating per-episode pledge with Patreon. With the online service Patreon.com, you can pledge as little as $1 per episode, put limits on your per-month contribution, and change or cancel your pledge at any time. For more information about how you can support this podcast in one of these ways, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. That will take you to a page with details on both these support methods. Thanks. What else here? Uh, since, la- since the last episode, a couple weeks ago, um, the uh, third-class medical reform um, actually went, well, it was sort of a f- made official, I guess is w- one way to put it. Um, and it's going to take effect uh, on May 1st, as I understand it. Uh, and it's basically what we've ex- been expecting for some time now. And, uh, um, it, and it has a name now, right? This was new to me. I hadn't heard this before. Had you heard this before? It's now called Basic Med, one word. Basic ba- Med. Basic Med, yeah. With an uppercase M in the middle there. And uh, Yeah, so it's Basic Med. And uh, is it, in fact, um, the, so the, the requirements or the, 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 you know, the, the steps and checklists, I guess is a way to put it, of Basic Med, is it what we were expecting from the proposals? It's basically what Congress mandated that they do. Uh, the structure of the uh, checklist and the uh, quadrennial doctor's visit uh, fall right in line with what uh, what we've been expecting after uh, Congress put it in the last FAA temporary reauthorization uh, last Last year, last July, President signed it July 15. So mm-hmm. the FAA had uh, a year to uh, make it active, which, or it was going to automatically become in effect without the FAA action on this coming July 15. So they're beating the deadline by uh, a few weeks, uh, giving everybody time to uh, ask questions and to challenge the uh, wisdom of some of this and to complain that all these doctor visits aren't a driver's license medical. Well, that that went out the window before Congress uh, could start writing a legislation that 
got us what we uh, what we have. And the complaints I've heard that people were expecting to just be able to use their driver's license, they they hadn't been following this because that wasn't uh, that wasn't in the cards for uh, a long time. That that got stuck in DOT and wasn't going anywhere. Well, plus. You know, let's let's back up a second here. A lot of people, as as Dave actually correctly notes, um, are are disliking the FAA regulations. But it was Congress that came up with this plan, and other people have said this also. Is the FAA basically did a copy and paste on what they were told to do by Congress. So if you have problems with the way this is 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 going to work, or you have problems with uh, you know having to see a, a physician every year or, or every couple of years or something like that, and keeping some records, um, that's not the FAA's fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, are there any particular aspects or elements of this new rule that people are are now that you know, in the light of day complaining about? What what is it there? Oh they, yeah. What you know it? they're they're complaining about the same things uh, two years ago or a year ago when this was being passed and being considered by Congress. Um, there's a lot of concern in some some corners um, about whether uh, about whether a general physician will sign a piece of paper saying someone is fit to fly an airplane. And for example, and, and that's that can be one of the requirements, I believe, uh, under basic med, uh, if you choose to go without a third class medical or if you uh, you need a medical for your operations. Um, the I've, I've queried two different AMEs about this. And both of them are like, that's a nothing burger. They just kind of laugh. That's a nothing burger. General physicians sign paperwork like this all the time for people to drive cars, to engage in other activities. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's, an, it's a nothing burger. Right. My, for example, my, my primary uh, doctor um, apparently does uh, DOT medicals. Um, truck drivers have to have some paperwork done. And uh, so I think I think many doctors are more familiar with things like this than one might realize. Um, well, well, and if you look at the paperwork that you know the, the your physician is being asked to sign once every four years, it's not certifying you to fly. It's certifying you that you're free of these medical conditions exactly. that force you to go right. back to the medical process and to get a special issuance. They're not saying that you're healthy to fly. They're just saying you don't have any of these conditions and your other things are normal. Right. Mm-hmm. And I got to figure, figure that it's not going to be a case where the doctor writes a letter from scratch. Mike, I got to figure right. there's going to be a right. template letter, a boilerplate oh, letter. Oh, ab- absolutely. And yeah, I'm going to print out that letter and I'm going to carry it into my doctor's office and say, are you willing to sign this letter? All right, right. And I bet that's the way it's going to work. And there's well, there's there's online um, seminar, webinar, training uh, is part of this also that that is online uh, now, as I understand, or has recently been approved an AOPA uh, curriculum. Um, yeah, I mean, it, if if you want if you want to fly airplanes, you have to you have to do X, Y, or Z right. uh, to ensure that you're healthy enough to do so. Yeah. And let's let's visit a couple of things here. First off, the pilot has to fill out this form to run this checklist every two years. Uh, 
you only have to see the doctor every four years for the doctor to be able to say that you're free of any of these conditions that would either disqualify you or require a special issuance. That's not saying you're fit to fly, just saying that you're healthy and don't have any problems. Now, let's compare that with the driver's license medical proposal that was petitioned by AOPA and EAA together. Uh, and what you get between these two. The EAA-AOPA joint petition was asking for a driver's license medical to be able to fly four-seat aircraft of up to 180 horsepower, up to 10,000 feet, uh-huh. day VFR, and only carrying one person. You couldn't use those other two seats in that four-seat aircraft. So it was basically a heavyweight LSA ticket. But you still had to have a private pilot's license to do that with just the driver's license medical. So in the minds of a lot of people, myself among them, that really wasn't a step forward. I mean, uh, okay, yeah, you can fly a 150 and you can fly a 172 and a Cherokee 180 or a 150 or 140. Uh, You can carry one person, day VFR. To me, that wasn't a far enough step beyond what we get with light sport to be significant. Right. But we got a lot more than that. We got a lot more than that. Yeah. What do we get under basic med? I mean, we get... We got the world, baby. Yeah, that's right. Up to six-seat aircraft. um, Up to 18,000 feet, IFR, 250 knots. Day-night. Day-night, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's pretty pretty yeah. at the risk. Everybody yeah. everybody needs everybody needs to just take a chill pill. Yeah, really. The one part of this that did jump out at me though, and I've been somewhat um, comforted on this, but I'll I'll bring it up anyways just for conversation's sake. And one of the requirements of the rule, and I'm reading now from the FAA's uh, uh, press release that came out right after they announced this. Um, one of the bullet points here is consent to a national driver register check, and I'd never heard of that before. Do you guys know what that is? Yeah, we do that now. How yeah. does, how does, what is that and how does that work? Dave, go ahead. Oh, uh, this is easy. You, you do that now when you go for a third class or a second class or first class medical. And that gives the FAA the uh, uh, permission to check the National Driver's License Registry to make sure that you haven't had a suspended or revoked driver's license because of some violation like driving under the influence. Okay. Well, that sounds fair and reasonable. I'm unclear. And, and they've been doing that for years. Okay. But I'm unclear on how the new mechanics of that is going to work. The way it used to work, I would, I'm guessing now, because I didn't, don't recall seeing this, but I bet it was there, when I filled out the uh, form for, to get my third-class medical, there was, a, there was language in there that said that I consent to this check. Is that where it was? I bet? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. So since I'm not filling out that kind of a thing anymore, where exactly how do I go about consenting under these new rules? That letter that the, you ask the doctor to sign every four years testifying that you don't have any of these disqualifying medical conditions yes. and that things like blood pressure, that's language is going to be in that letter. But that'll be signed by the doctor, so I have to sign that letter too? Oh, yeah. Okay. And then, okay, and, but, then, and then, do you send it off to the FAA, or do they do they even know question. about this? Right. How how does how does the FAA know? That, I'm sorry, that may be in the 
form that you do for yourself every two years and copy to the FAA. I'm not well, real clear there. Okay. But there's going to be a mechanism there where you, you do that and it gets in the FAA's hands. Yes. And that's, I guess, ultimately my question, all right, is that there's some element of this, and I don't think it's very heinous or very burdensome, but there is some element of this that requires me to file something with the FAA or submit something to the FAA. Yeah. And it doesn't require remember, their approval. It just requires me to be on record. I, right. That, okay. And remember, technically, we're required to self-certify every time we fly. No, that part I'm fine Doctor with. Doctor visit notwithstanding. So That part I'm fine with. I just wasn't clear and still not, but I'm going to get more clear about the actual mechanics of this consenting for the check. And, and again, what am I supposed to do with all this paperwork? So I'm going to have a letter from my doctor. I'm going to have a piece of paper that I have kind of filled out or, or, or a certificate. Apparently, you can do this, this education thing and this certification thing through organizations like AOPA. Um, and I yeah. think, uh, I think I actually saw a, a news release recently that AOP, I think it was AOPA's online program has been up, accepted or approved or whatever the right terminology right. is by, oh uh, yeah, they were standing by to pull right. the trigger on that. So, so if you're an AOPA member, you'll be able to use them to do a lot of this stuff. All right. And presumably AOPA then will generate some sort of, I'm making finger quotes here, certificate. Oh, it's, it, it's going to be an online, uh, right. it's going to be an online, uh, template that you go through and you certify yourself. Uh, as the FAA requires every right. two years, and that I believe that gets submitted. And uh, well, that's the question. I, I, and again, I'm I, not I, being suspicious or cynical here. I'm just curious what the actual mechanics are. Um, so, do I uh, carry this packet of paper now? Do I put an envelope in, you know, with my logbook? Or, I mean, how, you know, how, not exactly. Yeah, you'll, sure how th- you'll carry that in lieu of a medical certificate. Okay. All right. And, and then the other question I have about this whole thing is whether or not, because I'm a renter, I don't own airplanes, and uh, are, are, are rental FBOs going to always accept um, basic med uh, for renting airplanes? Or are they even allowed to have a higher standard? Um, and- Jeb, you, you want to tackle this or do you want me to? Say that again. I said, do you want to tackle this? No, 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 no. What's the question? The question was, was, is will rental FBOs accept basic med for renting airplanes? Some will, some won't. It's it's less about, although it certainly can be the the FBO's policy, but it's as much about their insurance as it is anything else. And, And which is another... Uh, unknown here, and, and and nor is it something that could be known prior to this point. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and that is and that is how the insurance companies may or may not react to this. My uh, uh, fellow member of a club I belong to, well, actually three fellow members of a club I belong to, all own aviation insurance agencies, and I talked to one of them at our last meeting about this in anticipation that the rule was going to be out shortly. And his response was that if it's the FAA says you're legal, they're going to cover you. They may have to adjust the language in the policy. For example, my last hull insurance policy said quite clearly that to be covered, I had to have a third-class medical. And I've had a couple of people throw that up to me. Well, my current policy says I have to have a third-class medical. Did you have any other option for flying that airplane? Well, no, you had to have a third class medical to fly that airplane. Right. Okay. Now there's another option. 
And they're going to write policies that reflect that option, just like they wrote policies that said you could fly this airplane with a third-class medical instead of requiring you to have a first-class medical for no particular reason. So they're going to cover this, just like they covered the light sport. They're going to create policies that fit the circumstances, that meet the definitions, and the policy is going to say you have to have a third-class medical or be eligible and qualified under basic med to fly this airplane if it's in the category that basic med allows you to fly. That's up to 6,000 pounds, up to six seats, up to uh, 18,000 feet, 250 knots, and so on. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. All right. I, I think there, there's not even a single engine limitation in this. You understand? I know. No, I know. You it's, could do multi-engine <clears throat> or it's, turbine. It's a little or bit turbine. Yeah. It's a little bit surprisingly generous. Um, but I, I think it sounds good. I think it sounds safe and reasonable and and good. I just well, didn't, I, didn't expect them to go this far. Quite frankly. Thank Thank your members of Congress who voted for this because. That and President Obama, uh, soon to be former President Obama, who signed it into law last July. Yeah, yeah. Because and, and they the are the reasons that this happened, not the FAA. Yeah, and the alphabets helped too. Um, um, AOPA and EAA and the others um, um, yeah. were, were st- really stepped up to make this happen. So. And I don't think in our wildest dreams, AOPA and EAA would have ever pitched a petition seeking what basic med gives us. Yeah. No, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Okay. Shout-outs. What do we got here? Anything anything image wants to jump in about here? Shout-outs. Shout-outs. Uh, I had one, but it's all long past. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I got a shout-out. Yeah, what's that? Uh, to Jack uh, for, for for all his help uh, and, and uh, some fun, fun and games here over the last week or so. Um, I, I do appreciate it. Um, and there's more to come. Okay, that's the part I was. That's the part I was waiting for. <laughs> I was going to say, does that mean I'm done? <laughs> no, 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 no. You're very welcome. Uh, you're very welcome. I love hanging out down here, and uh, uh, not only am I happy to help out, I, I enjoy these projects. I really do. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm having fun. Uh, home. I'm 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 doing the home improvement thing, the home ownership thing, vicariously through you. Um, so uh, it's a it's a little bit exhausting sometimes but generally it has fewer uh, fewer expenses involved well my little quick shout out that still does apply is to uh uh that well-known vendor of aircraft parts and uh and hardware aircraft spruce and specialties Uh, yeah because they recently purchased the uh paul and audrey pomeresny home in oshkosh and plan to uh turn it into a uh uh, kind of a museum and event center. Uh, they bought the house and uh, the nine acres it sits on, and uh, uh, they're going to make it available to the public uh, beginning in the uh, summer of 2017. And if you want to use it for an event, uh, you can uh, contact the EAA for details on how to do that. But... The, uh, the the fact that aircraft spruce uh, jumped in and bought the estate, as they call it, uh, 
means it's going to be preserved for uh, EAA members and fans of aviation for a long time. And it could have gone to a, a private individual and uh, turned into their home and and would have been off limits to us. So yeah. no, that's uh, hats cool. off to Aircraft Spruce. Yeah, yeah. that's very yeah. cool. Where is that? That's That's not on the convention or adjacent to the convention grounds, is it? No, it's uh, not far away, uh-huh. but it's not on the ground. Okay, all right. Because I always thought, I was, I don't know, I somehow had it in my head that there's that building that's sort of at the edge of uh, Camp Scholler, uh, between the parking lot and Camp Scholler. I think they used it for, oh, um, courtesy car pickup or something like that at some point. Um, and I, I, for some reason, I had it in my head that that was a residence of the Proberesnies, but maybe not. I don't know. Well, that was Paul's workshop for a long time. Ah, uh, Okay. Okay. Anyways, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, um, good on uh, on aircraft spruce it's, for preserving that b- bit of yeah, aviation yeah. history. Yeah, it's, it's good of them to step up for that. That's it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Anything else? We done? Fork time. Fork time. Big Fork thanks time. to uh, everybody. Thanks to uh, Jim Goldman for uh, uh, sharing his uh, experience with us. Um, I, I think it's a, a, a very valuable learning slash cautionary tale. Um, and uh, it's it's generous of him to share these perhaps a little bit embarrassing situations, but uh, he, he did a good... Oh, I don't think that's embarrassing. I think that's, you know, you don't get embarrassed by your aircraft having a problem. Yeah, yeah. So thank you to Jim for, for uh, uh, telling us about that and for all the things that he helps us out with uh, on the podcast. We really, really appreciate that. Uh, Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's Ab Buyer magazine. David, what are you doing? What are you working on? Uh, let's see. I've got a business aviation. Well, this, this won't be out in time for that. Uh, well, it, it covers story in this month's, uh, avionics news. I believe I mentioned that before we uh, talk about the, uh, G 1000 NXI from Garmin, the okay. upgraded, uh, panel. Yep. You did talk about that last time. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's about to come out now. Excellent. That's out on the streets and on the website. Cool. And speaking of which, where can people find you and your work on the Internet? Well, for uh, avionics news, it's uh, www.aea.net. For avbuyer, it's avbuyer.com. Or uh, I'm uh, Real Higdon on the Twitter machine, and uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Excellent. Excellent. And Jeb Burnside, Jeb Burnside this, this BB thing has been a 10-year problem, but uh, Jeb Burnside uh, is the— have, have, you, have you sought therapy for this? Is the, uh, is the innkeeper here at the uh, Home for Wayward <laughs> Aviators, uh, as well as being a uh, freelance aviation writer and editor, uh, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. What are you working on, Jeb? Uh, uh, bridges. Yeah, bridges. We are working on bridges. We are working on bridges. We might even post pictures. I don't know. We've got plenty we, of pictures. Yeah, I don't know how much. Pictures, how yeah. much we're going to open that kimono? But uh, don't want. Uh, don't want. <laughs> don't, yeah, yeah. Don't want to <laughs> drop that. Yeah. What? What else? Um, actually, that's pretty much it. Been flying some airplanes. Um, yeah. Um, actually, flew both the Champ and the Debonair in the same weekend. So I know. Was, I saw you fly the Champ the other was, day. That was good. Yeah, that was it was good. good. It was good. We got some. We got a couple of really great pictures of you lifting off uh, in the mm-hmm. Champ, and uh, mm-hmm. that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. Well, okay then. Yeah. Well, in general, when you're when you're busy, you're doing your day job. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Oh well, the day job thing. Yeah, well, aviationsafetymagazine.com. Um, uh, like David, uh, avionicsnews.net. I'm sorry, aea.net for avionicsnews magazine. 
uh, general aviation news for uh, a column I write for uh, Ben Sclare and GA News, and um, might pop up just about anywhere else. On Twitter? Twitter machine, Burnside J. There you go. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, where I am, uh, twitter.com slash Hodgson. That's just one word. Uh, you can also learn more about me than you ever really wanted to know at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Um, I'm continuing to work on uh, uh, finishing volume three of the Around the Field uh, collected columns. And, uh, and I've been doing a lot more video lately, and soon I'm going to uh, be pointing people to places where they can look at some of these videos. It's all pretty crude right now. I consider it to be my, uh, um, you know, at, at, at my, my, uh, my mature state of life, stage of life, I'm, I'm going back to film school, or at least a film school of my own making, and uh, producing student films, which are pretty much as good as student films never are. Um, but... Uh, but um, I'm doing more and more video, and uh, I'll be pointing to that on the net at some point in the future. So stay tuned if you care at all. Um, and uh, let's see now. Where are we? Oh, right. Well, thanks to everybody else who helps us make this pos- podcast possible. Uh, big thanks to Jeff Ward for his help in the show notes and in the forums. Uh, thanks to Mike Morgan and to Royce Earl, Jim Goldman, of course, and to the many of the listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. Uh, you please support UCAP by making a repeating per-episode donation of any size via the online service Patreon. Uh, you can get all the details about this at patreon.com slash uncontrolled airspace. And while you're at it, go into iTunes and give us a review and uh, a thumbs up and check some arrows or check some uh, stars. Um, it really helps get the word out about what we're doing. Please follow us on Twitter. Uh, uh, Uncontrolled Airspace itself has a Twitter presence uh, at twitter.com slash class G airspace. That's all one word with the letter G in the middle. Uh, you never know what might turn up there. You can also listen to uh, UCAP in the free section of Sporty's Pilot Shop's mobile app Takeoff, along with other podcasts and special Sporty's content. Get the get your UCAP hats, shirts, and other cool gear at the UCAP Swag Shop. That's at uncontrolledairspace.com slash store. And don't forget, you can check out the rest of the UCAP website. Ten years worth of UCAP show notes and episode downloads. And last but not least, chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. All of that can be found at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? Yeah. Live long. <laughs> live, live long and enjoy life from, uh, from the uh, flight levels uh, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Dave, don't sound too enthusiastic about it all. <laughs> <laughs>